Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 3. We'll be starting with verse 1. Actually, I'll be starting with verse 10 this morning. If you don't know where 1 John is, just open your Bible to the last book, the book of Revelation. Then come forward, you'll find Jude, then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, while you're getting there, just some review as to what we've learned so far. Just a few things, what we've learned so far in this study. First, last week, powerful Sunday. I think the part that blessed me the most was uh, two boys that seemed to be very receptive. An elementary school age boy and a middle school boy that were excited about the truth. I love it when kids get excited about the truth. That's awesome. But last week we saw Jesus is God come down. He's King of Kings. He's, he's Lord of Lords. Your capacity to recognize this is the result of a divine unction and anointing that is on you that's helping you to see it. Who is Jesus to you? Please consider Jesus. Please ask God to reveal himself to you. And then, is he in charge of your life, or are you, or is something else? You see, the spirit of the Antichrist is rooted in a refusal to surrender to Jesus Christ as king. Why? Because it's about us being the kings of our own castles and a refusal to submit to anyone, even God Almighty. Then we saw that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice offered up for us, the lamb uh, to, to end all sacrifices. We saw that uh, believers are, are prone to messing up. And instead of pretending to be something that we're not, we need to be honest with God, with a spirit of repentance, and we need to be honest with each other. This is about walking in the light, which is truly the path to our full victory. And then uh, a theme that's just continually through 1 John is that we must love one another. This is the only way that we will ever truly prove the faith we profess to have. And just a word right here. I think the problem in the church today, the reason so many are having trouble with church today, is because somewhere along the line, an offense, an offense has been committed against you that you've held on to. And uh, in the Men's Tuesday Studies, we're learning that offenses are the bait of Satan. He wants to use them to mess you up, to establish a root of bitterness. And so you've got to let the offenses go. Because you can't say you're a believer and be mimicking and mocking and rejecting the body of Christ. 1 John was written to believers as an encouragement. Encouragement for those who, who believe, as well as a directive to keep them on track, uh, to, you know, keep them on track to the basic things of the faith. It's not intended to be used as a hammer on the heads of those who haven't come to faith yet. What's happening during the time period around 90 AD uh, is, is that many are falling away from the church. And sometimes, you know, we wonder, where are the people who used to come to church? Well, in, in, the, in the time this was written, there were those falling away. And so John wants to encourage those who are setting their eyes on Jesus to remain there. So all these themes that I've highlighted for you at the beginning are in today's text, if you look for them. But let's get into it. And as I said, let's start with verse 10. I think it's a key verse to our study this morning. Verse 10, 1 John 3. This is how we know who the children of God are 
and who the children of the devil are. Please notice that there's no third option given here. I mean, either you're a child of God or you're something else. If you have trouble with this, uh, please hear me. I didn't say this, okay? God did. And uh, this is kind of a measure as to who may just be playing church. I also think it's important to point out that uh, John presents Satan as a literal figure, not just a figment of the imagination, not just as an idea, literal figure. So this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. The basic idea here has to do with what we practice. Do we practice? Make it our... Our, our resolve to obey God and to love his people, or do we do something else? So today's goal is to help us to understand that true believers will walk in full surrender to Christ and in relationship with each other. Today we'll look at this obedience factor, doing what's right. Next week we'll look at this love factor as we get into verses 11 through 24. But please know, again, and I emphasize this over and over again, that this isn't about us doing some good thing to earn a position in the kingdom. There are simply some things that will be different in the life and actions of a Christ follower because of the Holy Spirit unction that's at work in him. So as we work our text, to help us get a little bit of outline here, I want to break this up into four reasons that we desire to be different. And the first one is in verse 1. We are loved by God. Look at verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Would you just think about that for a moment? God loves you so much that he's willing to call you his own. It's an amazing thought. I don't know about you, but I just don't think I'm that lovable. You know, as long as I've lived in Estes Park, I've consistently heard people say, speaking of the grandeur of our surroundings, excuse me, I hope I never take this for granted. Well, can I let you in on even a greater reality than the Rocky Mountains? That God somehow loves you, that God somehow loves me enough to adopt me into his family and call me his son? Oh, let's not take that for granted. And then he tags this little emphasis at the end. Some translations leave it out, but it's there for reinforcement, and that's exactly what we are, sons of God. <laughs> you know, society will spend billions of dollars each year to help bad people get better. <laughs> I mean, if we could just get them in the right environment, the right surroundings, the right resources, we could help them out. So uh, we, we keep raising taxes, we keep growing the government, building more prisons, uh, spending more on schools, and what do we get? Well, we just don't see a whole lot of results. Fascinating. The way it works in God's economy is like this. You don't need all the right pieces in order, in order to begin your transformation. You just need to know one thing. You need to know you're loved. It's God's love that will rescue you from a life of rebellion, and it's God's love that will complete you in Christ's image. Amen. You know, the Westminster Confession, the Shorter Catechism, states the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
John Piper penned it slightly different when he wrote, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Catch that emphasis, because when God put the elements of creation in place, he enjoyed them. He looked at them and said it is good. He looked at the man and the woman and their uh, creative aspects together and said it is very good. What we need to understand is that the root of who God is, he takes pleasure in what he does. And he wants us to participate in that same level of enjoyment. So the application, enjoy God, get around him, bask in his love, and you will be transformed. Going on in verse 1, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You know, the world just doesn't get Christians, do they? They can't share our full excitement, and according to the scripture, it's because they don't know him. The unction isn't at work in their hearts. How many of you, when you became a Christ follower, you had those in your life that thought maybe you were out of your mind? <laughs> Did anyone have someone tell you, so so what? We're not good enough for you anymore? <laughs> maybe they said, you're not one of those Bible thumpers, are you? <laughs> uh, I'll never forget an uncle of mine who said to me, you're not one of those tongue speakers, are you? Well, I didn't even know what a tongue speaker was. I had to go home and research it. <laughs> you see, what we need to understand is when people ask us questions about our faith with a sarcastic tone, we don't need to get defensive. We just need to realize that they need to know God. That's what it's all about. So the application is, let's just love those people. Let's pray for them to come to faith. It just tells me I wish I could just go back and in my days of zeal fix some things that I messed up trying to win people into the kingdom. It's not my work, it's, it's God's work. Get this, our goal is never to help people to understand us, but to introduce them to Him. That's where transformation begins. The second thing I see is in verse 2, and that is we desire to change because we have a hope of becoming like Christ. We have a hope of changing. Verse 2 uh, it says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, that's what we are, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Now we'll see the point in just a minute, but let's just work this part for a few minutes. God's love for us doesn't stop with our adoption as sons, but it continues with our transformation right up until the coming of the eternal kingdom. See, we don't know exactly what we're going to look like, and that's a great thing. I mean, there are some wonderful surprises ahead of you. So, uh, just in a kidding fashion, when you see that picture of an angel sitting by himself on a cloud dressed in white, playing a harp, you can know that's of the devil. Why do I say that? Because the devil doesn't want us to get excited about heaven, so he allows boring images of what it looks like to be put all over the place. But would you just imagine with me, imagine a place where every action is done with pure motives and nothing is tainted with pride or selfishness or sneaking around. Would you just imagine with me a world without suffering and death? Can, can you imagine a world without tears, without conflict, without betrayal or hatred or rejection? Can you imagine a world where you're not held back by your limited ability? Just dream with me for a moment about the possibilities and then take all of your dreams and realize that God is going to do exceedingly abundantly above all above 
anything that you could ever ask, anything that you could ever hope, anything that you could ever dream, and anything that you could ever imagine. That sounds really good to me. But going on in verse 2, we see our point. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Did you know that Jesus is a picture of what a normal human being looks like? I mean, normal in the sense of rule or standard. We were created like Jesus, but we messed it all up and became abnormal. As a result, something's amiss in the world because each man is out for himself. But, but Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfect life. He had no selfish ambition, and that's what we were created to be. Now, we like to convince ourselves that, that we're fine, but we'd sure like to have the opportunity to vote on everybody else, right? That's what abnormal people do. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and then he did just that, because that's what normal people do. Not critical, but compassionate, grace-filled kindness. I want to be like Jesus. You were made to be like Jesus. Please remember 1 John 2, 6, that says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So the comparison of these two verses is this. And in, in verse 2, we're, we're told that we will be restored into his perfect image the moment we see him. But in chapter 2, verse 6, we see that now we make this our very aim, just knowing that we will someday be complete. And that is a glorious thing. The application here, without allowing it to defeat you, just Learning to ask the question when we begin our day or when we face a challenge, what would Jesus do? And then ask God, God, I need wisdom. What would you do? And remember, that includes not harboring offense. The third thing I see is it starts in verse 4, that we're different because Christ died for us. Let's read this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, and here's the definition, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. He died for us. We want to live for him. And in him, now notice that statement, in him is no sin. Okay, now we could conclude that this is talking about Jesus, but it's talking about those who claim to be in him. Watch this as we go on. No one who lives in, in him keeps sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Look at that. To destroy the devil's work. So a couple of keys here. First in that definition, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness simply to ignore, to reject, or be void of consciousness toward God's desires for us. Um, the Old Testament would state it this way, that place where each one does what seems right in his own eyes. That idea that there are no absolute right or wrongs because we live with a sense of moral relativity. How could it be so wrong when it feels so right? John isn't talking about perfection here because if he were, he'd be contradicting what he just taught us in 1 John Chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, if we claim, he's talking to believers, and he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth, 
That unction is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So what's, what John is saying is that the children of God will not be characterized by a spirit that is contrary toward the things of God. Sin will not be our practice. And that's really what it boils down here, down to here. The lawless one is Satan. Will we listen to the lawless one or will we listen to the righteous one? Eve listened to Satan's arguments. Sounded pretty good. Maybe God is keeping something from me. And she got all messed up. So there's a difference between a believer who messes up, a believer who struggles in an area, and someone who's practicing things contrary to God. Believers can't go around saying, I'm saved by grace, therefore I might as well live like the devil. Paul uh, challenges this argument in, in Romans chapter 6. He's been talking about how our rebellion against God has, has allowed grace to be seen more clearly. Did you catch that? How our, our, our rebellious nature allows grace to be seen more clearly? So, so he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I mean, if it's our rebellion that allows God's grace to be seen, maybe if we sin more, we'll see the grace all the more. To which he says in verse 2, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it? How can we practice it any longer? Oh my goodness. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So I see a couple of applications here. First, if you're justifying sin in your life by claiming grace, stop it. I'm not saying stop sinning. I'm saying stop calling yourself a believer because according to these verses, you just may not be a believer at all. But on the other side, the second application is some of you are too hard on yourselves because you struggle in an area. Stop it. Recognize your God-given desire to be like Jesus. Um, yeah, I just have to think about Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But Romans 8.1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look, conviction is intended to draw you closer to God Condemnation is intended to destroy you. I think one of the great dilemmas of the Christian experience is that the closer we get to God, the great, greater awareness we have of our sin problem. Can I say, rejoice that you're conscious of your fallenness because it's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Now agree with Him about your struggle. Surrender that area of your life and watch the work that He will do. Paul talks about his struggle this way. Now, mind you, there's various opinions as to what he's talking about here. Some, he's going to talk about a thorn in the flesh, and some, or some would argue that it was a guard that he was chained to. Some would argue that he had trouble with his eyesight. Uh, in this case, I'm going to present it as though it's a struggle in an area of the flesh, like what you struggle with. And he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, Paul's realizing God's given him all kinds of good stuff. He said, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. And then this amazing statement, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, and we need to hear this and learn this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
So he goes on, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Get this. My weakness is God's greatest opportunity because it's the place where his power most needs to be demonstrated. So as believers, one of the great evidences of his spirit at work in us is a desire to be holy, to be everything he created us to be. We don't go around practicing things contrary to God. Instead, we make it our practice to do the right thing. Now, I think there's one more thought that needs to be injected in, in, uh, interjected here and that is God's law God's plan is given to promote life now Satan would try to suggest that it's given to try to deprive you of something so here's something I think the church needs to hear get this obey God and have a good time doing it have fun doing it is that fair I mean let's stop taking ourselves so seriously trying to be holy. I love the fact that my kids laugh at me when I take myself so seriously. We probably need to laugh at ourselves. Maybe God laughs at ourselves. So John is encouraging those who are keeping their eyes on Jesus because many are falling away and he wants those who are focused to stay focused. So here's the final one in verse 9. We desire to be different because of the Holy Spirit working in us. It says in verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. We could say, will continue to practice sin. Why? Because God's seed, literally sperma, remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is what we call regeneration. It's the term born again. There's literally a new man rising up within you because the Spirit of God is making it happen. Born again. You were born of water at your physical birth, right? Uh, the water broke and you came forth, right? But have you been born of the Spirit of God? Is the seed of God coming alive in you? That is the key to change behavior. Call on the name of the Lord. Surrender to Him. Allow Him to take up that central place in your life and begin your new journey. Come home. Some of you have tried so hard to change and nothing has worked because you've bought into the philosophies of the world. Now watch what God can do. He wants to manifest because verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his, his brother. This is not because we're better than somebody else. It's because of the Spirit of God who's at work. You can't say you are one thing and then make it your practice to live differently. This is why the world often looks at the church and say, well, Christians are no better than non-Christians. Well, maybe the problem is that not everyone who's claiming to be a Christian really is one. These words weren't given so that we could go around checking out everybody else. But they force us to consider questions like these, and I need you to consider these questions. Do I have the divine nature working in me, or am I just pretending to be something I'm not? Do I feed that divine nature by sitting at the feet of Jesus and praying, allowing the Holy Spirit to cause the Word of God to come alive to me? Are there areas of unconfessed sin in my life? Are there areas I need to surrender? 
Do I call the shots in my life or am I surrendered to his will? When temptation comes, do I dabble in it? Do I play with it or do I walk away from it? Oh, how we need God's best work in us. Let's pray. God, we want to be of you. We want to do what you want us to do. And that includes loving our brother. So here we are today again, thanking you for your spirit at work in us, drawing us to you, causing us to want to be like you. So here we are saying, fill us, Lord, new and fresh. Take your rightful place at the throne of our lives. Make us the kind of people you created us to be. And thank you for your promise to do it. It's encouraging. It's motivating. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.